At Woodside Bible Church, we gather each week to pursue God by studying His Word together. We live in a culture filled with promises for a better life, deeper satisfaction, and greater purpose, but how do we know which is right? We invite you to join us for Smoke and Mirrors, deciphering truth in a world of truths, where we'll look to scripture to expose the illusions of our culture, and together, hold fast to a better answer, God's. Good morning. My name is Chris Shea. I'm a part of the teaching team here at Woodside. And that means I have the pleasure of traveling all over to our now 15 different campuses, uh, preaching and teaching and getting to know all the wonderful people that are a part of our local body of Christ uh, at Woodside Bible Church. And, but with the, the COVID pandemic and everything that happened, a lot of that really slowed down over this past year. So it, it's been, I was looking back through, through my records, it's been over a year since I've been out to Romeo, to, to this location, to, to see all of your smiling faces. And so first of all, let me just say thank you for having me. It's, it's a pleasure to be here worshiping with you all this morning. But some things have changed. I couldn't help but notice that uh, I didn't quite know my way around <laughs> this morning. Uh, a lot of things have changed. You finally have gone past the, the breaking ground stage, which it seems like you were stuck in for so long, and, and you now have fully functioning, brand spanking new worship spaces. And so I just want to congratulate you all. I know this has been a long time coming, and it's so wonderful just to finally be able to see how all of these things have come together and to see how... God's timing has, has just worked out so perfectly for this, and so it's really great to see that. But also, the last time that, that I was here, uh, I was carrying around a little baby. She would have been uh, maybe one years old, at least from the last time I was here. So I brought a comparison just so you can see. Uh, that's her on the left when she was one, and this is her on the right just recently. She's two now. But I don't think that she came with me the last time because I think it was near the whole COVID thing. So the last time that she would have been here, she would have been in like a baby carrier. Uh, and so if you guys uh, remember me holding a little tiny baby, this would be her. And things have changed in my house, right? I mean, we've gone through some things. She's now walking and talking and she's so smart. It's just incredible. It's been a wild ride with, with all kinds of changes at home. But I love watching and being a part of the childhood development process, right? Uh, we're in the phase now called the why stage. Anyone ever been there before? <laughs> yeah. Um, recently, we were having a conversation at, at bedtime, and my sweet baby girl says, Good night, Daddy. I love you. I'll see you in the morning. And I say, Yeah, well, you know, actually, Daddy won't be here in the morning, but Mommy will be here. And to which she says what? Why? Why won't you be here in the morning? And I say, well, because I have to go to work. Why? Why do you have to go to work? Well, because I have to make money. Why? Well, because we need money. Why? <laughs> Why do we need money? Well, because money is what allows us to, to have nice things. Like what? Okay, all right. Well, it's bedtime, but let me just say, you know, the clothes that you have, 
the nice house that we have, the roof over our heads, this very comfortable bed that you are laying in to go to sleep tonight. Money is what lets us buy food to eat. It's what lets us have a car that gets us to the places that we need to go. Oh. Like work? Yes. Wait. (laughs) Now, do you see what just happened there? (laughs) She done twisted this thing around, and just like that, thanks to the help of my inquisitive child, I begin to see the monotonous, repetitive nature of my day-to-day life, right? It, it, you know, you, I set an alarm to get up early in the morning and go to work. And then somewhere in the middle of the day, I, I take a little break to refuel, right? To eat some lunch. And then I go back to work. And I'm working hard. And you know how it is. There's, there's deadlines. There's things that need to be done. There's maybe some overtime to be earned. So maybe I stay a little late. And then I go home and we eat dinner and we get ready for bed and we go to bed exhausted. Only to do it all over again the next day. <laughs> and the next day. And again and again. Until you die. <laughs> Basically is, is like the gist of it. Right? But what about the nice things? Right? Right? Remember the nice things? Well, because the more you work, the more you earn, the more money you have, the more things, the more nice things that you can then afford. And so doesn't it then make all the work, hey, all the stress, all all of the exhaustion and, and the lack of sleep, isn't it all worth it? Well, maybe, Possibly, but if you continue to spend the majority of your time at work, then do you really have any time to enjoy the nice things? And let's be honest, is there ever really enough? Is there ever really enough? No matter how much money we make, we always want a little more. No matter how many nice things we have, the next newest thing, the next best thing, the next greatest thing, the next reiteration of that thing is right around the corner. And when it comes out, we want it, don't we? Which is why when, when companies advertise, they, they do it in such a way that they know this, right? They are catering to our desires. And it's why it's projected that in this year alone, by the end of the year, companies will have spent around $282.8 billion in advertising. Almost $283 billion. That is a lot of money that is spent in advertising. But they will spend it because they know that if they build their advertisement, you will come. You will answer it. It's the American dream that that you can have anything you want. You can be anything you want if you just what? Work hard enough for it. I'm going to go out on a limb and say that everyone here has all experienced what this phenomenon in life that we call keeping up with the Joneses. Right? You all know exactly what I'm talking about, whether it's a desire for the newest electronics, computers, cell phone, whether it's about the nicest clothes or, or the biggest house or even the coolest car. If that kind of thing sounds silly to you, we just spent the weekend at the Woodward Dream Cruise. It's still alive and active. People want that stuff. And no matter what it is, all it takes for us is just seeing that something else is better. 
Something else is better than what we have or what we are experiencing, that there is more to be had. And so before we know it, any kind of joy, any kind of contentment that we thought we had, any kind of satisfaction that we once experienced in life is gone. And there's two reasons, primarily, I, I think, for this kind of thing. The first reason is pride. This is when you see your possessions uh, and your belongings as a reflection of your worth as a person, right? And so, of course, you always want the newest, <laughs> the biggest, the, the best stuff because it's, it's a reflection of how valuable you are. That makes sense. And, and the second reason is when you believe that these things are actually going to make you happy. Now, that's what the advertisers really want you to believe, that that's where you'll find your joy and your satisfaction in life, that in them you will find all of these things, true meaning, purpose, and satisfaction in life, but it's just not true, is it? It's not true at all. And don't get me wrong, you do work for it. You do pay for it. But in the end, you find out that you've been sold a lie. Literally, sold it. And over the last few weeks, we've been studying through the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes together in a sermon series which we've titled Smoke and Mirrors. Because there's all kinds of, of ways that the world promises that you will find meaning and purpose in life in so many different ways, but it's all a lie, right? It's all an illusion. It's all smoke and mirrors. And that's the conclusion that the preacher of Ecclesiastes comes to as he's evaluating the the meaning and, and purpose of life under the sun. That is, life here on earth. And, and we've seen him pursue meaning and purpose in life in, in many different ways now. So far, we've seen him explore naturalism. We've seen him look to intellectualism, to hedonism and individualism. And all of these things he finds meaningless. He says it's all vanity. It's all striving after the wind. And so today is, he's going to turn his attention to another potential source for meaning, and that is the attempt to find meaning, purpose, and satisfaction in life through good old hard work, through our labor, to become successful, to, to earn lots of money, and obtain lots of nice things. Now this is what we call today materialism. And in the end, it will leave us with the same question that the preacher of Ecclesiastes has, and that's this. Why don't I ever feel like I have enough? Anyone ever relate to this question? Why is it I don't feel like I ever have enough? And so if you haven't already, would you please join me in your Bibles, or your Bible apps? Feel free to fire those up. Just find yourself with me in the book of Ecclesiastes, chapter 2. Ecclesiastes, chapter 2. And if you remember last week, after looking at so many different areas of life and finding no meaning or purpose in it, nothing that lasted, nothing that provided true joy or satisfaction, the preacher begins thinking about death, right? He says, you know what? When I think about it, we're all going to die, so what does any of this even matter at all? What does it matter? I mean, whether you live wisely or foolishly, whether you earn a whole lot or very little, we're all going to die and be forgotten. And so he says, I hated life. I hated it. Death becomes the great equalizer on the playing field 
of life as far as the preacher is concerned. And as we pick this back up in verse 18, he's going to give us some more details about this, about why he hated life and why it seemed so pointless, so meaningless to him, especially in the face of death. And this is what he says, Ecclesiastes chapter 2, starting in verse 18, he says, I hated all my toil, which I toil under the sun, seeing that I must leave it to the man who will come after me. And who knows whether he will be wise or a fool. Yet he will be master of all for which I toiled and used my wisdom under the sun. This also is vanity. So I turned about and gave my heart up to despair over all the toil of my labors under the sun. Because sometimes a person who has toiled with wisdom and knowledge and skill must leave everything to be enjoyed by someone who did not toil for it. This also is vanity and a great evil. What has a man from all the toil and striving of heart with which he toils beneath the sun? For all his days are full of sorrow and his work is a vexation. Even in in the night his heart does not rest. This also is vanity. This is what some theologians have referred to as the confessions of a workaholic. Right? Because when we read about the preacher's toil, that, that's what we're, we're talking about. Toil is work. It's, it's what he's doing. And, and he summarizes the problem that he has with his work very succinctly in verse 18 here. He says, I've done all this hard work. I've toiled. Right? Look, look at all the nice things that I have. I worked for them. I saved for them. I bought them. They are for my enjoyment. They are my things but I know I'm going to die. And when I do everything that I have worked so hard for, everything I worked so hard to obtain and maintain is all going to be left to someone else, some man who comes after me. And then to make matters worse, as if that wasn't enough, he adds this detail in verse 19, that there's no way of knowing what kind of person is going to end up receiving his belongings, his nice things, right? They could be a wise person. They could be an absolute fool. And he's already said in verse 13 earlier that as he looks back on his life and his experience, that clearly there is more gain in wisdom than in folly. And so therefore, the choice is clear for him, right? If if he had the ability to choose between the two realities, he would much rather his belongings go to someone who is wise, Someone who's going to appreciate them and take care of these things. Not a fool. Someone who's going to be careless with it and reckless and waste it all away. Why? Because they don't even understand all the hard work that it took in order to acquire it all. Did you know, statistics say that 60%, in 60% of cases where there's inherited wealth, it is completely gone by the end of that second generation. Wiped out. The fear of of self-made millionaires and billionaires all over is that their spoiled children who never knew hunger will not have the wisdom and the resolve to handle their inheritance, this great amount of wealth. And in fact, if the preacher of Ecclesiastes is King Solomon, and, and we believe that it is, then unfortunately that is exactly what happened. That's how this whole thing unfolds. When King Solomon dies, he leaves all of his earnings to his oldest son, King Rehoboam. And you probably are familiar with that name. 
King Rehoboam is his son, and it's obvious as we read this in Ecclesiastes that he wasn't so sure if his son was going to be wise or foolish with his inheritance. But we do. We know through God's word. 1 Kings 12 tells us that Rehoboam was indeed a fool. And it's sad. He's a fool who lost ten twelfths of his father's kingdom, almost all of it. And so you can understand what the preacher is struggling with here, except really, I mean, when it comes down to it, it doesn't really matter what kind of person gets his belongings because as far as he's concerned, no one actually deserves it. Nobody else worked for it. He did. It's his. And so the very thought of this makes him sick to his stomach. He can't handle it. Verse 20 says that it brings him to despair because it's all vanity. It's all a great evil that a man should die after all his hard work during the years of his life with absolutely nothing. And all of this is confusing. It's vexation. Causes him great sorrow to the point where he can't even sleep at night. He tosses and turns thinking about these things all the time. Jesus tells a parable that's similar to this, warning us against focusing on the physical things in this life here and now while ignoring the more important eternal things of spirituality. Here's the scene. Jesus is surrounded by thousands of people. He's, he's teaching, and a man shouts at Jesus in order to get his attention. Hey, hey, I got a question. And he has a question. He's coming to Jesus because he'd gotten into it with his brother. They're, they're fighting over an inheritance issue, right? And so he's coming to Jesus as an authority figure here, someone who can tell them what to do. And his goal is to have Jesus tell his brother that he should divide the inheritance equally between them. And our kids do the same thing today, right? Even, even before we're dead, <laughs> right? Mom, dad, make him share this with me. It's not fair. So nothing has changed. And this is kind of what we see happening here, except Jesus doesn't respond to it directly. Instead, he answers with this parable. Isn't it just like Jesus? Do something like that. It's a parable about a rich man who has a, a vast land that produces a lot of crops. In fact, it produces at such a high rate that he can't even store all of the crops in his barns. And so what does he do? Sell the crops? Give them away to the poor and, and the needy in the community? No. Instead, he comes up with a plan to tear down his current barns in order to build bigger barns that will hold all of his crops. This is how it reads in Luke chapter 12, starting in verse 18. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, you fool. This night your soul is required of you, and the things that you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. And this is the warning Jesus provides. Take care. And be on guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. Take care. Be on guard 
against covetous, against materialism. And the preacher comes to the same conclusion that no matter how much toil, no matter how much striving you do in your work, no matter how many nice things you acquire, it's all meaningless. It's all vanity. It's all striving after the wind. And you know, if we're not careful, we can fall into the same trap today. Even in the church, believe it or not. Because even though we have an advantage in that we, we look at more in this world than just what's under the sun, right? We are still tempted to work for our salvation. Thinking that if I want to be forgiven, if I want to have eternal life, then I'd better shape up. I'd better get to work. I, I, I got to start doing these things. I got to definitely stop doing these things. And I, I have to do all these things for God, for his acceptance, in order so that he would take me. I have to work hard. And so whether it's our, our physical lives or our spiritual lives, we are tempted to think that it just doesn't end. We, we got to keep going. We, we got to strive for perfection. We got to work hard. We got to put in the effort. We got to have one foot in front of the other constantly, all the time, wearing ourselves out on the treadmill of life, getting nowhere. Until we wind up just like the preacher, feeling sorrow and despair because it's all pointless. It's all meaningless. But that's why the gospel is such good news. Because it's not about us. It's not about the work that we do. It is about the perfect work of Christ on our behalf. That we are saved because of the person and work of Jesus alone. And so we cannot manufacture our salvation. We cannot earn it for ourselves. Listen, we cannot put God in a position where he owes it to us. Because we deserve it. The Bible says that the wages of sin is death. And you understand what a wage is, right? That is what we earn. It's what we deserve. It's what is due us. So the only thing that we have earned as sinners, the only thing that we've earned for ourselves is death and the eternal wrath of God for our sins. But when we take our eyes off of the things of this world, the things under the sun, and we look to heaven, we realize that we have everything we need in Christ. Because God sent his one and only son. The very word of God became flesh and lived among us. And he lived a perfect, sinless life of obedience to God the Father. Not just as a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit in our lives, not just as an inspiration or someone to be followed, but as a substitute in our place. See, Jesus didn't just die for you. He lived for you in your place. So that on the cross of Calvary, Jesus takes the holy wrath and fury of God onto his shoulders for your sins and for mine. And in exchange, we are then gifted with his perfect account of righteous living before the Lord. And because of the person and work of Jesus in our place, we are forgiven. We are redeemed. We are adopted into the family of God. We are fellow heirs with Jesus. And so God is not just the almighty creator and sustainer of the universe. He is our father. 
And think about it. As parents, we would do anything for our children, for their well-being, right? We love them. We care for them. And the truth is, we, we only have limited means and resources at our disposal to do so. But God, God is infinite means and resources at his disposal. He is sovereign ruler of the universe. And at the very same time, he is a loving father who would go to great extremes for you. Even so much as giving his one and only son. That is how generous God is. And that's actually a big idea today, that God is generous. Salvation is a gift And we are then invited to find rest in the perfect work of Christ on our behalf. Because God shares his spoils with his people. God shares his spoils with his people. Let's pick this up. Ecclesiastes chapter 2, starting verse 24. The preacher says, There is nothing better for a person than that he should eat and drink and find enjoyment in his toil. This also, I saw, is from the hand of God. For apart from him, who can eat or who can have enjoyment? For to the one who pleases him, God has given wisdom and knowledge and joy. But to the sinner, he has given the business of gathering and collecting, only to give to the one who pleases God. This also is vanity and striving after wind. Now, this is a significant moment in the book of Ecclesiastes, because it's the first time the preacher has anything positive to say, really. And this positive statement is directly linked. It is correlated. It is tied to God, right? He says, there is nothing better in this life than when someone is able to eat and drink and find enjoyment in their work. And that, he says, can cannot happen apart from God. He continues in in verse 26 to say that to those who please God, God has given them wisdom and knowledge and joy. Now, this parallels a similar statement that we read earlier in verse 21. If you look back at that, as he's reflecting on life lived without God, he says that work is characterized by wisdom, knowledge, and skill, and that it's empty. It's vexation. It is vanity. But now, as he finally considers God, he says it is possible to work with wisdom and knowledge and joy. Joy. How how is that possible? Well, think about it. Where did work come from? The devil. (laughs) Isn't that what we think? Usually we tend to think like that. That Adam and Eve are just living in paradise. They're laying on a hammock, sipping an ice cold lemonade when that pesky little devil comes along and tricks them into sinning. And now, as a result of that sin, we have to work. That's just not true. When we look back at at the creation account in Genesis chapter 2, before sin ever entered the picture, it says this in in Genesis 2.15, that the Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it, to keep it. And so God gives Adam the command to work in the garden right away. And God looks over this situation. He says, you know what? This is good. This is a good thing because it gives Adam a purpose. It gives meaning and expression to his life. And he can work 
with joy. He can do it all for the Lord because he's doing it with the Lord and he is working for the Lord. You see, work itself is not evil. It's not from the devil. It is all a part of God's good purpose for humanity in creation. Now, if you hear that and you think, I don't know about this. <laughs> this is not my experience with work. I, I dread going to work. Well, you're not alone, but that is the result of sin, right? The reason that work can be so hard, so difficult, so unfulfilling is because of sin. And so if we go back to Genesis after the fall, this is what it says in Genesis chapter 3, and to Adam, God said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field by the sweat of your face. You shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you are dust. And to dust you shall return. See, work is not the problem. Sin is the problem. Work was meant to be good and fulfilling as a gift from God to man. But after sin entered the world, things changed. Because our work is harder. It involves more effort, more pain. And just to be clear, we're not just talking about a job here. right? This, this isn't just about your career. This is about your entire day's work. Whatever that might be for you. That includes getting, getting up and getting the kids ready for school and doing the laundry and going grocery shopping and, and making dinner and, and cleaning up all these things. Whatever God sets in front of you for your day's task is your work. And we can actually find great joy when we enter into it with and for the Lord. Because otherwise, without God, it, it seems pointless. Our work seems meaningless. It feels like busy work, right? And, and we know the difference here, don't we? There is, there is work that you enjoy doing because it's important. And so it gives you a sense of meaning and, and purpose and satisfaction and belonging. When you, when you finish that work, you feel good about it. And then there's busy work, right? There's the stuff nobody likes doing because it's not urgent or important. It's the kind of thing that really anybody could do and to make matters worse, it's never really done, is it? There's always more busy work. There, it's just small, meaningless, mundane tasks. And so we hate it. We do not like busy work because we're never satisfied with yourself or with the work you've done. And it never ends. It just keeps going. That's what the preacher says life is like without God. It's like busy work. It's filled with small, meaningless, seemingly mundane tasks that just never end, and it's pointless. It's all vanity. It's all striving after wind. But once again, when we take our eyes off of the things of this world and the things under the sun, and we look to heaven, all of that changes. Because in Christ, we have been given a glorious inheritance in the kingdom of heaven, in eternity. And that starts right now. When you place your faith in Jesus, Ephesians 1.14 uh, says this, that you are sealed 
with the Holy Spirit. The very Spirit of God is given to you as a deposit of that future inheritance, as a down payment, a guarantee that you have an inheritance in the future beyond your wildest dreams. Do you understand just how incredible this is? Listen, everyone who we look up to in the Old Testament, all all the patriarchs of the faith, Abraham and Moses and Jacob, they only had a very limited access to God, right? Because, Because of the presence of sin. Because sin separated them from God and it created a necessary distance It was to protect us in our fallen sinfulness from the all-consuming presence of God's perfect holiness. And so God's presence is always at a distance in the Old Testament. It's on the outside. It's on the mountaintops. It is hidden behind a thick curtain in the Holy of Holies. But now, now because of the person and work of Jesus, the veil that was separating God's presence in the Holy of Holies has been torn in two, and the outside God has come to live inside the believer. Woo! Absolutely amazing. What Moses and the patriarchs longed for, what, the, what all the prophets had prophesied about coming to pass, it has happened. It has come to pass in the person and work of Jesus. We have access to God like never before. We can live in communion and fellowship with him by the power of his spirit in us every day, in the everyday stuff of life. And we can find joy in the work of our day. The spirit of God is the greatest thing that we can ever possess. Amen? I don't ask for amens a lot, but I think that's worthy. Guess what? The best thing about this, maybe, is that unlike the the nice things that we get, that we earn, that we acquire in this world, when you die, the Spirit of God doesn't go away. It doesn't get taken from you. It only gets better. This is what we read about in Revelation 21. It says, Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them and they will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. See, eventually, all the things that we struggle with here and now will be done away with. No more sickness, no COVID, no cancer, no more pain, no more death. Because sin, Satan, and death itself has been defeated once and for all in Christ Jesus. And God shares those victories. He shares those spoils with his people. That means death is not the end for us, friends. And for those of us who believe in Jesus as their Lord and Savior, that we are not only brought to new spiritual life now in the present, but that we too will be glorified, will be given new bodies, we will be recipients of great riches in the kingdom of heaven. And we will enjoy God's presence, his unveiled 
glory forever and ever. And this leads us not only to joy. Oh, it brings us joy. But it leads us to worship. To worship the king. Because we realize, just as the preacher of Ecclesiastes here, that without God, life under the sun is meaningless. It's pointless. It's all vanity. It's all like trying to catch wind. But when we enter into divine communion and fellowship with God through Christ and by the power of his spirit within us, we can finally experience what we all long for so desperately. Ultimate meaning, purpose, and satisfaction in Christ alone where we're no longer prone to falling into the trap of this world by becoming a workaholic. By becoming a workaholic in order to feed your materialism, only to be let down again and again and again. Our God is so generous. God is generous. And that, among his many other qualities, makes him worthy of our adoration, our praise, and our worship. So let's continue to do that this morning. Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for the gift of your word today. But Father, we confess it's far too easy to find ourselves all wrapped up in the things of this world. Whether it's the temptation to become a workaholic, searching for, for meaning and purpose in our careers, or even the ordinary things of our lives, the, the chores around the house and, and the events that, that we have planned, the, the, the things on our calendar, Lord, no matter what it is, our calendars fill up fast. And it's just so easy to get distracted and take our attention off of you. So forgive us, we pray. God, give us the wisdom and the strength to lift our eyes and our hearts to heaven away from the things under the sun, and to focus on you. Continue to ground us in the truth, in the reality that you are our God and we are your people. Not because of who we are or the things that we say or we do, not because of our work, but because of Christ and Christ alone. Father, empower us to live for you, to find purpose in you, reflecting the magnitude and the majesty of Christ Jesus to the world around us for your glory. It's in the name of Jesus and by the power of the Spirit we pray these things today. Amen. Thank you for joining us as we study God's Word together. We would love to hear how God is moving in your heart and get you connected into the Woodside Bible Church family. Head to woodsidebible.org connect to introduce yourself today.